Hi. One of the features here on Less the Book Coach is going to be a weekly podcast. Everybody has a story. I spent 17 years in radio asking questions, and until I started this series, I had no idea how much I missed it. The format of these podcasts is going to be a guest and me in a conversation, and you get to eavesdrop. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed the conversation. Let's get started. Welcome to today's version of Everyone Has a Story. My guest today is Rob Syke, longtime friend and agronomist, a speaker, author of a couple of books, and uh, started a new company, but we're going to talk about that later. But today, Rob, I'd like to key in on, on your second book. Tell us, tell us about the offering in the first book and, and where you went with the second one. Yeah, the first book, The Agriculture Manifesto, focused in on drivers uh, that will shape agriculture. The second one, Les, I wanted to write for the urban marketplace for people who aren't connected to the farm. So I wrote it, and it's called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. And I wrote it so that it has really two parts in the book. The first part really takes you on a journey of the first four iterations of agriculture. And the second part of the book, Les, take you through uh, uh, what's called convergence, which is what's happening now, which all the technologies are coming together on the farm at a breakneck speed that we've never seen before. And it's reshaping agriculture and farming as we know it. So Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, uh, written for Urban Marketplace, uh, divided into those two parts. Food 5.0, and, and you say that convergence on the farm happening faster than ever. Give us an, an update as to as to the things that you see happening on the farm, and even those of us that have been involved in agriculture are are sometimes surprised by by the speed that things are are changing. So, what do you see happening for farmers in 5.0? Well, as as let's let's go back. Let's start at agriculture 1.0. And uh, you know, if you ask urban people what their impressions of farming is, they may have a impression of a farmer with bib overalls and a hoe. Well, that's not farming. Uh, agriculture 1.0 was the era of muscle. It's where we had oxen and horse and men and women pulling plows. Sometimes children pulling plows, and that was the uh, the uh, beginning of agriculture, the era of muscle. Agriculture 2.0, we're still in it, it's the era of the machine. So within, with industrialization came the steam engine, came harvest and threshing machines, and, and came the modern equipment that we still enjoy and depend upon today. Agriculture 3.0 was the integration of chemistry. So think back to 2,4-D and, and the introduction of uh, um, atrazine and trifluralin, trilate, and all the early chemistries that we used. And in the early part of our career, less uh, you know, farmers used a lot of chemistry per acre to try to control weeds, insects, and and diseases. And 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 then along came agriculture 4.0, which is genetic engineering or GMOs. And contrary to what you know people think, uh, the introduction of GMO crops, canola in particular, in Canada resulted in the mass reduction 
of the amount of chemistry that we use to grow the crop. So we we utilize GMO or genetic engineering technology to reduce the amount of chemistry we sprayed on the field to control weeds. And more importantly, it resulted in farmers being able to reduce tillage. So we don't till the land anymore. We practice, you know, minimum or zero tillage. So that takes you less on the journey from agriculture one, two, three, four, uh, to convergence. And again, if if you if your idea when I say the word farm is a round fender pickup truck or a or a little red barn um, or a farmer with a straw hat on, well you're watching the history channel because that is not agriculture today. So what's happening? What's happening in convergence? What are the factors that come to play? Great question. So the first thing that's uh, that's underpinning convergence are these very powerful currents that affect all of us in society today. And perhaps the best one to illustrate this would be Moore's Law. Moore's Law, the law of the computer, says that the microchip will increase in speed, double in speed every 12 to 18 months, and it'll come down in cost by half every 12 to 18 months. And that's been happening regularly since the in- invention of the, of the microchip. Uh, to, actually could trace it back to transistors. Uh, Overlaying on top of that is the new advent, the the new thing they're working on, which is called quantum computing, which is going to gain blast computing power into the future. So the first thing that's happened that changes farming is computing. The second thing that changes farming is data and the amount of data that we're producing. You know, we we're talking over right now, you and I are talking over cellular connectivity. Well, you know, you couple uh, weather stations, soil moisture probes, you couple carbon dioxide sensors in potato bins, um, you have uh, drone uh, drones that are taking in-season imagery or aerial uh, imagery or satellite imagery. All of this is generating all kinds of data, data from machinery, data from green bin storage. All of that is just piling on the amount of information coming off the farm, and it's creating an opportunity for us to manage the farm in a brand new way that we never had before. So now let's go to the other side. What does that mean for consumers? This transition that we've gone through from muscle to machine to chemistry to genetics to convergent, what what does that mean for the consumer? Well, I think it means several things. Number one is it means a more reliable food supply because when you think about what we've been able to do, even in my life, we've taken canola yields from sub-20, sub-30 bushel per acre to now 80 bushel and guys are shooting for 100 bushels per acre. So the first thing is that the consumer has a more reliable supply of food. Secondly, the food supply is safe. Uh, Canada has got minimum detectable residue limits inside of our food. Our food is very safe. The the handling procedures, there's a reason that, you know, you don't take raw milk and just deliver that to the food bank. The reason that we go through pasteurization and the reason that we have the, the handling plants that we do largely revolve around safety of food. And the, the third thing is just the abundance and selection of food. I mean, you go to the grocery store and, and transportation has enabled us to bring food from far distant places. And, you know, we complain when we don't 
uh, have access to avocados today in the store because uh, that's what I want. So we have, you know, um, we have a reliable food supply. We have a face, face uh, a safe food supply. We have an abundant food supply. And going forward, I think we're going to have a really interesting food supply that'll be more focused on connectivity between the human body and and the nutrients inside the food, something called nutrigenomics. Now, and I, you, you highlighted it, the the difference in canola yields. From, from our career, and I'm sure that you remember when uh, Elanco was involved with a thing called Rape Yield 30. If a farmer <laughs> got, got 30 bushels of canola, they got a trip to Japan. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sitting in a Rape Yield 30 hat right now in my office. I got a Rape Yield 30 hat with a Trefland logo on it. And just think about this, Les. We used to apply Trefland onto black soil. So you'd have to work the soil black before you could apply the product. It was applied at a pound to a pound and a half of active ingredient per acre, not grams per acre, but a pound to a pound and a half of active. You'd work it in one direction, four to six miles an hour, four to inch, six inches deep. Wait a while, work it in another direction, then you'd plant the crop. Today, we don't we don't touch the soil. We, we seed straight into standing stubble of the previous crop. It's amazing. And our yields are three times the size. Well, you've been involved with the uh, with the campaign to to hit a hundred bushels an acre. I know that you've had had some involvement uh, with that contest. Is is that a possibility, or have you seen it done already? Well, that uh, the canola one hundred advertised was actually my idea, and the whole idea was could we set uh, a target of one hundred bushels per acre um, on spring seeded dryland canola on 50 contiguous acres, and the winner was actually 86 bushels per acre out of uh, Linden, Alberta. But we had people push those yields above 70, 80 bushels from all across Western Canada, and uh, it set a new bar. And now with the genetics that we have inside of uh, many of the canola varieties, I, 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 I have no doubt that we'll surpass uh, or we'll hit 100 bushels an acre uh, within the next five years. That's what's happened on the yield side, but let's let's stay with the consumer. You you talk about the abundance and the the transportation system has really taken the seasonality out of food. As you mentioned, it's you know I I expect to see avocados every single day. I remember when my parents uh, bought bought a pineapple and you know bringing that home like that was a special treat. You know, like holy smokes, we had a pineapple. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and now, like, it, it's it's a given. You know, like you think that you know, uh, if if we choose to have one, and they're like four bucks, let's you, you buy it on a whim. Has the has the removal of seasonality hurt us or, or hurt the industry, or just has it only changed the way we shop? I don't think it's hurt the industry. I mean, I I think that. Uh People grow, uh, farmers grow crops in areas where crops grow well. So the reason that the Midwest grows corn and soybean, because they do a really damn good job of it. I mean, we're growing a lot of corn and soybean in, uh, in Manitoba now, but that's largely driven by genetics that allow us to grow it with lower heat units. There's a reason that sugarcane is grown in Brazil, because they really do a good job of growing it in Brazil. The, the thing that, that interests me about uh, about the food supply and, and the, the, the potential to um, 
maybe personalize it more for consumers has to do with the migration uh, from uh, binary code to genetic code. And what I mean by that is that your computer runs on ones and zeros. It's binary code. But the uh, uh, but but life, the genetics of, of plants and animals runs on 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 genetic code, which is A, T, C's and Z's. Those are the basic building proteins of of your genes and your chromosomal complex. And so we're living in a COVID environment right now. And you know, it's uh, I'll I'll bet dollars to donuts that uh, the uh, the cure for COVID will be some sort of a vaccine or some sort of a medicine that'll owe its origin to genetic engineering. The manipulation of ATCs and Gs will yield a vaccine that'll keep people safe from COVID. Well, the same thing can be said of food. Why would we go back to, you know, prehistoric, uh, really ancient breeding processes that are all arbitrary and all accidental when we can start to shape food? We can shape the food that we're eating. And and interestingly enough, we can start to match the food to the human genome. I've had my genome sequenced less, and so I know what my chromosomal complex is and what the makeup is. And eventually, we'll be able to figure out what your genome is and match the food types to the genome. And eventually, we'll be using um, something... um, uh, gene editing to to be able to make these foods healthier, m- more resistant to climate change or salinity, uh, more uh, uh, more abundant and uh, and more sustainable. Ultimately, we need agriculture to be infinitely sustainable. So, how do we feed a population the food they want uh, in a manner that they need cheaply? Um, and, and do that all. Well, technology is going to drive that. It's all driven by convergence. Now, you, you talk about at the production level and, and a larger scale, but, uh, I mean, those kind of advances have, well, just this past week, I planted two apple trees in my garden, and both have four or five varieties of apples grafted mm-hmm. onto a hardy stalk. I mean, mm. uh, you know, you go back even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that would have been beyond belief, like grafting an apple tree was, was still a major event. Now, I bought, I bought two trees at, at Costco for under 100 bucks that each, yeah. each have four or five uh, varieties on them. Uh, I mean, I had to buy it, you know, for the novelty of it, and that, that cause something uh many of the consumers would not even understand um how how uh 20 years ago that would have been beyond belief and now we take it for granted uh, we pick up the trees they're they're under 50 dollars uh yeah. and and that's just in in our novelty gardening uh where it's driven by well, economics it's a much bigger factor and now I want to just, before we go on, I, I'm, I'm staring at a, a bag of apple chips here on, in my office. And these are genetically engineered apple chips. So you take your apple tree, uh, Les. It's got four different kinds of apples growing from one stalk. Now if we could take those apples and prevent those apples from spoiling, how would we do that? Well, we wouldn't introduce any genetics. We would simply go into the apple and we would flick off three to four genes inside the apple that causes browning. It reduces 
something called the polyphenolic reductase enzyme. It reduces the browning of the apple. So these Arctic apples are genetically engineered. They didn't introduce any new genetics or any new material into the apple. They simply flicked off some genes in the existing apple, and we would be able to save hundreds of thousands of tons of waste every year. So your apples are amazing. Your tree is amazing. I can make it more amazing by creating apples that don't brown prematurely. Actually, it's funny that you should mention this because one of the varieties, you know, like I had to do the research when I got home and research these things, and one of these varieties has that trait in it. Boom. Like one, one, of these, one of these branches is already noted for that. Rob, the, the talk that we're having here, it, to me, it gives us a lot of optimism. Like when you when you ask the question, how are we going to produce healthy food uh, for the world population? The things that you're talking about here have to give you optimism for that question, do they not? Well, they do, so long as farmers are allowed to use the tools. And so my purpose in writing the book is that, you know, your listeners to your show right now, if you put uh, the vote in the province of Manitoba, you go to Winnipeg and, and you vote GMOs, yes or no. Uh, people out of ignorance would vote, no, I don't want GMOs. And, and you say pesticides, yes or no. And they would say, no, I don't want pesticides. Uh, they would vote against it. So uh, fertilizers, yes or no. No, I don't want fertilizers. So what we have is we have a democracy where one person carries one vote. But if all of those votes are ignorant votes, and they don't understand the implications of the science, and they don't understand the implications of their vote, uh, they just listen to social media, which is a real problem today, and they listen to 30-second or 10-second sound bites instead of really understanding the underpinning of the science and how wonderful and how detailed and how tested it is, then we're in trouble. So I don't fear for the future. I fear for the future where panic policies are driven by ignorance, uh, pushed onto politicians who have to make laws based on that ignorance. That concerns me. That worries me. The ability of farmers to produce food that's safe, healthy, and abundant, if they have the tools, doesn't worry me. You also alluded to it earlier, the uh, comparative advantage of a region that that some areas are suited to sugarcane and some areas are suited to corn and, and soybeans. How concerned are you about the politics of the current world situation and, and trade? Because, I mean, that, that comparative advantage can only be recognized, can only be utilized when we have a freer trade system. Is that a concern to you? Yeah, I, I am concerned about uh, nationalistic policies. However, uh, Canada, from, from our own perspective, from our selfish perspective, we're in a really good spot. Um, there are only seven or eight regions, countries in the world, that produce more food than they consume, and Canada happens to be one of them. And we are living in a democracy. Um, for the most part, we have pretty rational people. Not always, but uh, pretty rational people. And, uh, and, and we have a, a free economy. So uh, I am concerned. Um, I have interests in a farm in Uganda, 
um, and I'm concerned about uh, whether or not policies are going to prevent the access to technology that's important for the people in that country. But from the standpoint of Canadians, I think that we're in a we're in a very good situation because the macroeconomic drivers dictate that uh, people around the world, if it's not China, then it's going to be the EU. And if it's not the EU, maybe it'll be the Middle East. But people around the world are going to need um, our agricultural products. And yes, you get market, you get market uh, distortions, you get political vagaries like we're dealing with right now with the Richardson and the Viterra a blockade of canola into China, but those are politically uh, longer term from a macroeconomic picture. I think Canada is in a, in a very good spot. The book is called Five, Food 5.0 and is intended to inform consumers t- about these issues. What, what can people like, like you and me and people from the ag industry do to further this message? What is our role? Well, I think there are several. Number one is buy my book. Go to Amazon, <laughs> buy Food 5.0 by Rob Syke, and, and, uh, and buy a couple copies, one for the library and buy one for your city cousin. Number two is in this age of social media, you know, is just to be able to lessen, just stand up, you know. We have Hollywood saying that you can't eat meat anymore, that livestock is is, uh, killing the planet, is causing global warming. Well, the fact of the matter is methane has a half-year, a half-life of 10 years. Uh, Carbon dioxide has a half-life of 1,000 years. A cow eats grass. The carbon for the grass came from CO2 through photosynthesis from the atmosphere. So the cow essentially ate CO2 through the carbon in the grass, and the cow burps. And the burp goes in the atmosphere, and in 10 years, it converts back into CO2. So explain to me how the cow made more greenhouse gas. All it did was cycle it. And the grass grass ingested carbon dioxide. The cow ate the carbon dioxide in the form of grass. It burped it out as methane, and it converted back to carbon dioxide. The only way you can have livestock impacting global warming is if you have more livestock. And unfortunately, the North American herd reached its peak in 1971. So we don't have more cows in North America. And everybody ex- excludes or ignores the fact that there was 100 million ruminants on the, in North America before Columbus landed in the form of bison and antelope and deer, etc. So again, I think that as agricultural people, the thing we need to do is get involved. And we get online. And somebody says, oh, GMOs are awful. And then you go, no, they're not. And that stops the conversation. Somebody asks you, well, why? Well, I'm a farmer, and I happen to grow a GMO crop, and I don't till my soil anymore, and I use a lot less pesticide than I used to use because of genetically engineered technology. So we need to get involved. We need to speak up. Rob, how important is, is that very message? That, and, and I think that's a difficult thing for the urban consumer to understand that the changes that have taken place in in plants have allowed for much less herbicide and pesticide use. No, oh, it's really important. I mean, and the winner in this isn't even herbicide tolerant crops like Roundup Ready or or uh, Liberty Link canola, which is everywhere around Winnipeg and in Manitoba. But the real the real benefit is uh, something called BT crops, which are insect resistant crops. And BT 
refers to something called Bacillus thuringiensis, which is an organic uh, insecticide. It's an organic bacteria that organic farmers spray on organic crops. Yes, I'll repeat that. They spray organic insecticide on organic crops because lots of organic insecticides and pesticides are used on organic crops. Um, so Bacillus thuringiensis was basically uh, put inside of corn, soybean, and cotton so that those crops would produce a resistance to the insects. And that's the, really the big win less is the amount of insecticide we're using in North America is dramatically lower than it was before we had uh, genetically engineered BT uh, insect-resistant crops. So that's the real big win for the environment. So don't tell me GMOs kill butterflies, because they don't. Uh, GMOs actually save butterflies, save bees, because we're using less indiscriminate insecticides in the environment. So that's the truth. Rob, thanks for your time. Our guest today has been Rob Syke, author of Food 5.0. That's today's podcast. Everybody has a story. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed asking the questions. And if you have any ideas for an interesting guest, you'd like to hear more on any topic, please send the idea along to lessthebookcoach at gmail.com.